Well, if you are sick of my voice, I'm sorry. Um, and if you're not, I'm also sorry, because this will be the last kind of <laughs> message that I give kind of individually for quite a, quite a while. I think Sue and I might tag team one before we leave for France. But, uh, but what I want to do today, we're going to open up the book of Ephesians. Can we have a round of applause for the Word of God in a book of the Bible called Ephesians? Thank you for, thank you for doing that for me. The, the book of Ephesians is one where I felt for a while, I've actually probably the last, um, off and on the last couple years, I've asked the Lord uh, the timing. I felt like the book of Ephesians is one where it's an anchor book. I don't know if there's a better book in the entire uh, canon of Scripture that, that gets at the heart of a healthy local church and that summarizes kind of the, the life of both finding yourself in the, the story of human history, giving the gospel story, and finding human beings, the local church, an individual, a family, in that personal story. So both, both the story of the gospel and then your story, how those things coalesce and coincide and, and bring us into the place where we're at here, kind of in the tension of human history between those things that are now, not yet. But how many of you know that we're meant to be those people that confuse the living daylights out of the world with the things that we get to experience now in the waiting? Uh, most of what Jesus came and demonstrated gives us more questions on how can all of that possibly be available to us right now than we should have questions of how many things do we just get to wait around for till later. Because in the Christian life, if you're, if you're continually saying, oh, that happens later, we get to have that later, I'll get breakthrough in that later, 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 all of a sudden you take all your, your responsibility to say yes to what he's already given you. And you put it in a time frame. You put it in a time that you have no responsibility for now. And I think the, the, the local family of God is one that is meant to remind each other who we are now. And, and to struggle with each other between those things that we don't have breakthrough in now. Without making excuses and without saying we have answers for things we don't have answers for. And I continually think that when you get into to, to the Word of God, it, it, it anchors us in those realities. It anchors us in those realities. So um, I actually want to pray for us as we, as we get into Ephesians. What I'm going to do today, I'm going to blow your mind, hopefully, in Jesus' name. I'm going to summarize a book of the Bible in one concise little message. Um, most of the time when you, when you go through a book of the Bible, you're going verse by verse by verse by verse. Uh, I'm one where I need to see the big picture before I appreciate the nuances. So my, my heart and the idea is that you're going to get a broad spectrum view of this book so that as we process through kind of um, chapter by chapter in the next few weeks, you're going to have a place to put it in your soul. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you love to be with us no matter what we're doing. And it doesn't have to be Sunday morning. It doesn't have to be gathered with other people, but you're sure excited when it is. We speak peace to our, to our land. And as the, the rumbling that's, that's happening in the, these earthquakes, would you release hope and peace to the, the people that are most affected by this? And any time that there's some kind of natural disaster that just causes us to perk up, think of other people, and, and, and when you're in a state where you can feel the shocks, it's just so prevalent. We live in, 
we live in a world that, that we have no control over. And at the same time, we're in a place where we have positioned, you have positioned us to live in those mysteries with absolute conviction and hope, introducing humanity to their heavenly Father that is perfect peace and love. I pray that Ephesians would do something to anchor this body into the truth of your gospel and into a tangible place of direction of how our lives lived out. Speak both to our families and to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible or you have a phone that has a Bible, which all your phones do, it's called the internet, if you don't have an app, please open to Ephesians, and uh, I'm just going to highlight a few things. Um, <clears throat> first of all, the, the, the name of this series I think we're going to call something like Deconstructing Church, the Heaven on Earth Project. And this part one is going to be called Finding Your Story in His Story. I always think it's a little cheesy when people do the play on words, but it's really effective for this, for this uh, message today. Finding your story in his story, his story. So what I'd like you guys to do is read this book at least three times over the next month as we study it. Can I, can I get a verbal, just at least your heart's intent to say, yes, I'm going to read this book three times. It's six little mini chapters, three times this month. That means every week, plus you get to skip one by accident. How's that sound? <laughs> Beautiful. Healthy family, healthy church. Uh, like I said, I don't think another book gives us such an overview of a healthy family as, as Ephesians does. The basic premise of this book is that there's, a, there's general truth and instruction that the heaven on earth redemptive work of the Father through Jesus and the diverse unity of the church among all kinds of peoples, this is what it looks like. This is what life should look like for the church, your home, and the world. That's the basic premise of the book of, of Ephesians. There's some key themes. Unity, love, grace. And most importantly, the final three chapters are all about our response. Our response to this profound gift of grace. Uh, the, this letter was written by Paul while he's in prison. He'd been with the people in Ephesus for a couple years previously. Currently, while he writes it, he's in prison in Rome, which is always powerful when Paul's writing in prison. Because the people reading it are like, this guy has authority. If you can write these things from a place where you're completely bound and locked in chains, and you can write with this perspective, this mentality, this mindset, this guy might have something we want to pay attention to. And, and these people in Ephesus he'd spent two years with, Paul knows what they're like. They're fascinated with the occult, with magic, and with the supernatural. I think there's a lot of dynamics in our city, in Los Angeles, that, that can resonate with Ephesus. Whether, whether you're friends or you have a background in that, we have a city that's captivated in the supernatural, in the magical, in the occult of many ways. Many people don't maybe not call it those things, but if you just look at what the, the productions are that we put out into the television or Netflix or whatever else, how many of them have supernatural realms? We're captivated with it. We crave it. And I think the city of Ephesus is one where he's writing to an audience that first and foremost, he doesn't have to convince that, that there is a spirit realm. He doesn't have to do that. In fact, his main emphasis is telling them, I'm giving you the superior of the spirit realm. I'm giving you the power of that realm to speak over it, to speak into it. 
So he emphasizes the power of God over all powers, all principalities, and all authorities, both in the age that they're in and in the age to come. And the letter, like I mentioned, is split into two, two halves. It's working. Thank you, Jesus. The first half is the gospel story. The second half is your story. The first half being Jesus, the gospel story, Jesus as the high water mark for all of history. Can we just take a moment and let our, let our hearts just be captivated with that reality. Jesus is the absolute climax of human history. He and his diverse community of followers, the church, is the climactic emphasis of all of human history. And that's what Paul does in the first three chapters. The second three chapters, four through six, he talks about how your story and our story together is connected to this gospel story. And this is what it looks like to live it out in our church and in our family and in our homes. So chapter one, what's the question? I would say the question of chapter one is what exactly has happened? And the answer to that is essentially that heaven and earth have come together. And I want to start with just this concept. I believe that we, the church, have been robbed. We've been robbed of our inheritance. Um, Inheritance uh, in, in America... Is, is still kind of a big deal. I, I looked up like rich people and inheritance, and I actually think I looked up Hollywood and inheritances just because I figured you know some of the names. I didn't know most of the names, so I didn't even bother to write them down. Um, most famous people that we talk about and are in the news aren't actually rich because of their parents, or maybe we didn't know that they were. Uh, Previously in human history, most people, the only way you could get rich is you, you started at a certain level, right? And the American dream kind of highlights the people that start at nothing. And I think because of that, because we kind of take pride in our country that your inheritance didn't get you where you're at, it's a very unique thing, we Americans, the American dream taps into that. And I think that that, that actually holds us back from receiving inheritance, And so I'd like you to start with a mindset of, I need to receive my inheritance from my good father. I don't need to earn this inheritance. I love the American dream, but sometimes secular dreams just need to be put in their spot. And you need to realize, first and foremost, regardless of your status in society and where you started, you start here from heaven's perspective. Well... The truth be told is we all start here, and he lifts us up, and he puts us at the right hand in his lap in heavenly places, and he gives us an inheritance, and he gives us a new name, and he uses family language to call us these things. This is powerful, but our mindsets are bound by an old man, old humanity way of looking at it, and what we're going to see here is that we need to take on this new man, new humanity thing, or new woman, new woman anything. You got to be careful with language these days. And it really is something where inheritance is a big deal. Um, but if you were wondering, Michael Jackson gave an inheritance to his chimpanzee bubbles of $2 million. I did find that out, and I thought that was fascinating. A chimpanzee, $2 million. So his chimp bubbles started at a, at a better place than I did. Amen. <laughs> uh, the, largest, the largest house in L.A. County, Spelling Manor. Anyone uh, saw that that recently went for sale for $120 million? Slightly bigger than my bungalow, 56,500 square feet. And uh, I don't, it didn't look like uh, Tori Spelling from 90210. Who remembers 90210? Several of you are not able to admit it. I see slight smiles. Thank you. 
Thank you. We all watched a little 90210, by accident at least. And uh, Tori Spelling, Aaron Spelling's daughter, I don't think she got the house. I don't think she even wanted it, to be honest with you. Um, that's all I could find on inheritance. Um, in LA that was interesting. It wasn't that interesting. And I think the reason is, is because um, most of the stuff in the news, people are arguing about, about money and inheritance because of greed and selfishness. It's funny how we don't kind of exalt inheritance, but as soon as you have access to it, we go after it, right? Just because you live in America doesn't mean like, oh, daddy left us 50 million? Well, you can have it, sister. I don't, I don't need it. Now, they, there's, there's families that are completely torn apart by inheritance, and the difference is in the kingdom, our inheritance pulls us together. Our inheritance unifies us. It actually unifies all humanity. That's what our inheritance does. But we have a problem with the split-level eschatology. So we've seen that, that God, heaven, the Bible, and our lives um, are supposed to live in light of the reality that we have separated heaven and earth in our theology. That, that we're going to go to heaven one day. That's called eschatology, how things end, eschatology. We've, we've had in the church this mindset that we're going to go to heaven someday and that Jesus is going to come and rescue us, the rescuer. And, and we got this actually from a Western philosophical tradition, which wasn't very helpful over the last couple hundred years. And, and what ended up happening is that we would essentially say that God and his heaven upstairs it was out of our sight and out of our mind, and we could kind of run things down here on earth, and eventually he's going to come back and, and rescue us, and we'll go up there, and everything will be great. But that's not, that's not all that helpful. And that whole mentality that we're going to leave the earth and go to heaven has very little to do with the biblical story, because the biblical story puts things in the opposite other way around direction. The last great scene in the entire biblical story is not people going to heaven, but heaven coming to earth. The Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem comes from heaven to earth so that God's world will be one. And the good news in Jesus has actually already happened. In Jesus, the twin halves of God's good creation have already been joined together once and for all. And here's the thing. We as followers of Jesus, we're called to already be in the world where heaven and earth have come together. And it may not always look like that. And that's the tension and that's the mystery we live in. That's the problem is that that's the exact place we're supposed to bring ourselves into and say that's the purpose for the church. To live in the already and not yet. We're to be a people through whom the power that raised Jesus from the dead will be at work so that the signs and elements of that heaven on earth reality will begin to come to birth in our very midst. We grew up in a church where heaven was a long way away, and we limped along trying to survive until we got there. Did anyone else kind of come with that mentality? I for sure did. I felt like what I was essentially trying to do was just get as many people as I could to hang on to this hope so that someday we would get there. But Jesus launched the on earth as it is in heaven message. And he launched the Heaven on Earth project, and it's not going to go away until we realize that we have a part in co-laboring with heaven until it's fully completed, until it's fully done. So, I would like to invite you today to say yes to finding your place in the story of his story, history, and your story coming together as one. 
So again, in chapter one, a little bit of a summary until we go into chapter two. The Jewish style poem here is, is all about what God has done through Jesus. And God has blessed a covenant people and made them into a family. Uh, I'm, I'm going to quote Tom Wright and Tim Mackey multiple times today. They have amazing summaries of these books if you want to look up their work in more detail. But just for the sake of uh, not, not uh, ripping off anyone's work, I just want to give them credit where it's due. And uh, feel free to use their resources if you, if you would like or come to me if you'd like them. But the main thing we see at the end of chapter one is that through Jesus, anyone can be adopted into the family. Forgiveness and grace are the two main cornerstones of chapter one. Forgiveness, Jesus' death covers all of your sin and forgives. And in grace and through Jesus, we find God's grace. And that grace then has opened up this whole new way to understand every single part of our lives. And the key verse in chapter one is 110. I'll read it to you now. God's plan for the fullness of time, all of human history, was to gather up all things in Jesus, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So if you're going to highlight one verse in all of chapter 1, it's 1 verse 10. In fact, probably the highlight verse of each chapter in the first three chapters is 110, 210, and 310. So you're going to go through and go like, boom, boom, boom. Where am I going in chapter 1, 2, and 3? It's 110, 210, and 310. God's plan is to have a huge family of restored human beings that are unified in the Messiah Jesus. That's God's plan. And Paul refers to this plan and being made clear that we, when he says we, he's actually talking about ethnic Jews, ethnic Jews that are part of the family of Abraham. And then he talks about you being non-Jews. We were brought in to, when we heard about Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and he tells about the events in Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit descends, and essentially he talks about this bringing together of Jew and non-Jew into one family under Jesus. To a Jew, this is, this is impossible, it's breaking their brain and, and to non-Jews now, when you hear this, it's not. But the point of this is, you've got to remember, all of human history, the Jews were to be separate and holy because they could not sustain what the family of God was meant to carry of God and his heart and his holiness and his perfection on the earth. Heaven on earth was not possible if you got diluted with those who worshipped other gods. All of a sudden, the message is, bring them in. It was always God's plan that Israel be a blessing to the nations. But Israel never, they, they became an identity that was about not other nations. Jesus came in and showed how the unity worked and how diversity was absolutely essential. So what's the prayer? <laughs> the, what I want you to see is that you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in beautiful tandem in unity throughout this entire book. And the prayer then that ends chapter 1 is that they would not just know intellectually what he's trying to tell them about this forgiveness and this grace. But he goes, if you don't experience this with the power of the Spirit, you don't actually know what I'm talking about. We have to be a people that don't just intellectually take hold of biblical stuff. We have to know it with the experience of our lives. So chapter 1 asks us what happened. The heaven and earth have come together. And the application point, I think, is that we need to repent from intellectual Christianity. And can we just do that for a moment? Father, whether they even know what I'm talking about now or not, <laughs> we as a body, we change our minds about thinking about our faith and our relationship with you in an intellectual, Western, philosophical, Greek mindset. And we say, we want to be saturated in experientially knowing you intimately like a father, like a daughter, like a son. Amen. Okay. 
So that's chapter one. Chapter two asks this, how does all this become a reality? And the answer is through you and I, through you and I. And it starts with this key concept. We've been saved by grace through faith. If you've been in the church long enough, that's nothing new. And, but there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And it says in 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should all walk in them. What does this mean, his workmanship? Yours artwork. You're the living artwork of God. Say it with me. I'm his artwork. I'm his artwork. We're going to work on that. I didn't, like, I didn't like the emotion in that. I'm not going to lie. That workmanship dynamic in Greek, that word workmanship means that we are God's poem. We're his very poem on earth. We have many incredible gifted people in this house. We, very, we have a lot of creative people. I think sometimes when you're surrounded with creative people, you miss out on all the ways that you are creative because you're constantly bombarded with people that are professionals at it. Isn't that so annoying living here in L.A.? I'm so annoyed at all the amazing professionals that ruin my ability to like, I'll doodle something and I'll be like, oh man, like I felt like it was like an inspired prophetic piece of art. My kids do this all the time. In fact, I don't know, my, I'm going to give my wife props. This week she... Um, she had the kids just sit down and ask the Lord for, for a picture and, and an encouragement for somebody in the church. And so they highlighted a couple of people. And I don't remember all the people. It was just a handful of people. Judah, I don't think Lin, Linda Scanlon's not here today. Judah um, gets his first person was Linda. And the, I think you had her, like a little note and a picture for her. And then they, they were out and they drove to her house. And she wasn't there. But Dave was there, her husband. And you know, it was her birthday. Judah had no idea. Judah got a picture for her on her birthday, and she left us a voicemail later. It was like teared up on the phone, and it was so beautiful, and, and, and really was, was amazing. You know, kids need to be taught prophetic art. What are, what's prophetic art? Prophetic art is you listening to God as you draw something or make something artistic. That's all prophetic art is, partnering with God in your art. And when you do that, what are you doing to a child? You're simply teaching them that their act of art is something that co-labors in his partnership with their Heavenly Father. That's all it is. And when you teach them that from an early age, how much more simple it is that everything else that they put their hands to is a partnership with their Heavenly Father. It's so simple. And they, they have these moments in life already, I'm watching my kids, where they, they know where God shows up. Where it was like, sometimes they do it, and it was like, oh, mm, you kind of missed that one, son. It's okay. Maybe tomorrow you'll get someone's birthday. And then they do. And then you feel like, almost like convicted as a parent. Like, oh, man, that was way too easy. Why do we do that never? Why is that like the only time I, my, we've ever done that? Like, it's a beautiful thing. But we can, we can as soon as I, I can do a little doodle, you know, while I'm, while I'm trying to worship and, and partner prophetically at my art, then I turn on the Instagram and I scroll through to half of you that have like your professional stuff in galleries. And I'm like, well, screw my little piece of whatever. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> maybe it's not quite that traumatic. I'm a little bit more <laughs> secure than that. Uh, but, but the reality is we can, we can immediately go into comparison. And the point was never um, for, for most of us to be his artwork isn't about finding a profession in the arts. And I think most artists, that's actually what they crave is that their identity would be expressed, and if it would happen to be done and they can make a living at it, great. But most of the time when you can't make a living at something that you're created to do, you start to look inward and it gets really depressing. 
And so I think if we became a people that were so secure in our identity and we were constantly looking at ways that we would become God's artwork, it would shift everything. It would shift everything in our homes and, 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 and not just the way we parent, but certainly in the way we parent. It would shift the way we look at our work. It would shift the way we look at our friendships. It would shift the way we look at how we spend our, our, our mental space and our daydreaming space and our communing with God space and our prayer space. And so two, chapter 2, 1 through 10 refers back to God's grace. And in 11 through 22, there's this new multi-ethnic family, which retells how this non-Jewish Christian family came to know Jesus. And it says that before hearing God, uh, Je- before they heard about Jesus, they were physically alive, but spiritually dead. Let me see if I can get better. They were trapped in purposelessness and, and spiritual forces. But God, in his great mercy and his great love, joined their lives to Jesus' life and brought them back to life. Now, we have these new human beings through Jesus and this immense joy of discovering the new purpose and calling that God's put before them. It's not a list of cans and can't do's. That's the thing that we still get caught up in. Instead, it's this absolutely refreshing discovery of God's creative artwork. When we look at our identity, not as now being a people that are bound to law, but are freed from a fulfilled law to be his creative workmanship, handiwork, beauty, poem in the earth. That's a new family that I want to be a part of. So they had, they had this previous covenant that came from Mount Sinai, and this is all the Moses and started with Abraham and Moses and so forth, that, that formed like a boundary that kept most people guarded. And the holiness of God was like, behind a fence, behind a wall. But in Jesus, what Paul is trying to tell them is that the Torah, this old law has been fulfilled. The barrier is torn down. It's been torn in two. And that we now have these two ethnic groups, Jew and non-Jew, that have come together, unified in humanity. They can live together in absolute peace and harmony. How ironic is it that the Jewish people live in the most absence of peace than any other country, nation on the planet, and their entire purpose is to bring peace and unity What is the missing piece? The Messiah is meant to be that missing piece. It's why they're still looking for the Messiah. Many Jews completely cut off Christianity because the Messiah is meant to bring the peace, which they don't see. It's meant to bring the unity that they do not see. And they stand on that like a look at the world. Obviously, Jesus wasn't it. And they kind of have a point. And Jesus is looking down saying, if my church would only show them what I gave them to demonstrate my peace and unity on the earth. It's why we have to be a presence in the city where, where you look out at the people in your community and go like, that's impossible. I would never hang out with you. <laughs> I mean, that's, how many of you have been in a, in a church setting of some kind where you just look around and go like, I cannot believe I do life with these people. I mean, they're, they're amazing, but like the, the, we would not have been friends any other way, shape, or form. This is, in, this is impossible. Either like they're way too cool for me or I'm way too cool for them. I don't know what, what side of the boat you want to put yourself. Maybe you're a jerk. Maybe you're not a jerk. Maybe you're insecure. Maybe you're too secure. The, the point is, is that it's, it blows my mind. I, I love going on mission trips that pull people from all over the world. And, and I love like, you know, all of a sudden you just like get sent out in teams to go, you know, discover the people of the place. 
And you know, I'll, I'll never forget when we were in Brazil, and I, I, I swear, like, our, our little team had like a, like a 17-year-old from, from like South America, uh, an 80-year-old from, from England, uh, and, and then like a couple of artsy people from the U.S., uh, a Southerner, uh, a, a Yankee, uh, you know, Californian, you know, it was, it was like diverse within America. It was diverse among the nations. We, we had we had Asian, red and black, yellow, black and white. It was it was weird. It was super weird. And it was like, at first, it was kind of like we didn't even know what to talk about when we we're trying to kind of bond, meet each other as a team. I'm like, this is going to be a super interesting outreach. And then and then we just then we just prayed, and it was like this bond of peace and unity just came over us. And we went out, and we just saw the most amazing things happen. And, and as we're ministering, like someone that just had this completely different perspective and word and, and, and whether it was a testimony or an encouragement, just, it just came out. And, and I just realized, like, I'm now walking around with this little weird posse of people that has just untapped, unlimited potential because of the bond of unity that we carry together. And we are meant to be that in the city. We're meant to be that weird group where all these people come together that don't look like each other, they don't walk like each other, they, 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 don't even, they don't even believe in having birth in the same way. Some of them have them in a bathtub, some of them like, don't give their kids shots and others do and you might be somehow figure it out. <laughs> don't get me started on politics. You know, so I, I just really, I just want to encourage us today. When, we, when the Bible talks about unity and diversity, I think we have, we have a city here where we have, imagine any other city you, you could probably, if you look at your ancestors, I guarantee you 99% of you look at, before the last 100 years, every single one of your ancestors lived in a city in a time where diversity wasn't even possible. Where really living this out wasn't possible. The Jews have always lived in a place where this was possible. Most of the rest of humanity has not. My Viking relatives, unless they were pillaging another nation way back when, they, they just had a bunch of Norwegians sitting in a little town with a bunch of other Norwegians until the last hundred years, right? And you can go back and do the, probably the same thing in your history. We have significant possibilities and potential in Pasadena and Los Angeles to live the gospel like never before. And I want to encourage every single one of you. You carry something that we need in this house. We have blind spots, both has, as it has to do with socioeconomic things, as it has to do with racial things, as it has to do with all kinds of different norms. And we need your flavor. We need your friends' flavors that you're maybe like, I don't know if they'd fit in or whatever else, but we need that. And maybe it's not the right time for them or whatever else, but the, the reality is, is if we don't continually diversify we are not living the gospel to its fullest potential. We aren't. So can we make a covenant together to put our hearts towards that together? Yes. Amen. Okay. I don't know where I'm at. Let's just keep going. The application point for number two, we need diversity in this church. Amen. Chapter three was then, what is the result? The church reveals the wisdom of God himself. I've done, did I do chapter three? Did I even get through that? I'm just going to, huh? I just started chapter three? All right. So I'm just going to highlight the, the key verse for chapter three. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so what the heck does that mean? 
I need to speed up. The principalities and powers that stirred things up, uh, that stirred up sex and power and the political structures and sociological structures, they want to do something. They want to force us into their mold and live in their way. It was the same way in, in Ephesus. It's the same way today. But the, the part that we're being brought into through Jesus by the power of the Spirit is that we can be the sort of family who by our mere existence, the principalities and powers know that Jesus is Lord and they aren't. What if we lived every day realizing that they were principalities, powers, and spiritual realms that were at bay throughout our entire city? And that instead of being kind of like kooky and weird about it all the time, we lived with this continual awareness that we carry the Spirit, that just by our mere existence, we are a, a sign that declares the goodness, the wholeness, and the beauty of God. I'm going to just keep moving. We need diversity. That was chapter three. <laughs> chapter four through six. I'm not going to go chapter by chapter for the last three. Chapter 4 through 6 asks these questions. How do we actually grow up? How do we live? And how do we guard ourselves as families? Because the second half is about our story. The first half, the gospel story. Second half, our story. And the answer is essentially we become like Jesus. We're filled with the power of the Spirit, and we put on this thing called the armor of God. That's our response to being in the story. The key verse in chapter 4 would be this. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Jesus. Ephesians 4 is all about how God gives many different gifts to his people, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, not in order so that they can separate and go their different ways, but so that we can be one rich, harmonious, multifaceted, beautiful, vocational body. And we have to discern what our gifts are and make sure that we don't turn those gifts into anything that's not honoring but it has to be edifying, building up the entire body. The whole point of the gifts of Jesus was to build up and equip the saints for the work of ministry. What does that mean? The whole point is that the whole of us is on this trip. It's not a me trip. It's a Jesus trip, to quote, to quote right. We're not on a me trip. We're on a Jesus trip, which sounds kind of like a, a, a drug trip, which maybe it is. And maybe you need to have, a, maybe you need to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that takes you like, like tripping out on, on the drugs. But I've had a few friends that got a little weird with that. So I'll just, I'll just call that for what it is. This, but this is the way that the body works together. In 4, 1 to 16, we see that people are vastly different. But it says over and over and over again that we've got one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, and one God. So what is that getting at? Again, unity, oneness. But unity is not the same as uniformity. That's where the diversity comes in. It's so that we're not all getting diversity so that we can all come in and then look the same. Unity is not uniformity. We have to embrace that in unusual ways, and we'll unpack that more in the coming weeks when we get into that chapter. But all people are now empowered by the same Spirit to have many gifts. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, like I said, the point is, is to serve each other. To serve each other, not to serve ourselves, and to build up the church. And then Paul uses these two metaphors. Number one, the temple the resting place and the dwelling place of God. The second one, the second metaphor that goes through the rest of the, of the book of Ephesians is this metaphor called the new humanity where Jesus is the head. And, and again, this will run through chapter 4, 5, and 6. Paul challenges Christians with this new humanity to take off the old humanity and to put on the new humanity. 
in which the image of God is being restored through the new. You in the new humanity are being restored. You are the restoration of all creation. And he goes on to this long section where he compares the old and the new. And it, and it goes like this. The old, lies. The new humanity, truth. Old humanity, anger. New peace. The old theft, generosity, gossip, encouragement, revenge, forgiveness, promiscuity, self-control. And then he ends with my favorite. Drunkenness filled with the spirit. You know, if you grew up in a religious system that was like, oh, don't do this, don't do this, don't drink, don't do drugs, Paul never does that. He replaces drunkenness with something way better. The Christian life is never about the no, 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 no. It's the better, 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 better. Better, 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 better. So every time I take communion, I don't need to get drunk on it. Because I'm just, I'm just basking in the better, 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 better. If you have temptation, it's like, oh, what is the lie that I'm believing? What do I need to replace the truth with? I need to replace that. And the heart of the drunkenness is that you have a void to be filled, a pain to be filled. And Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And I think it's beautiful that at Pentecost, the reason why they're running around drunk looking because, is because it's a demonstration of absolute filledness, saturated Happy, joyful people partying in this newfound power from heaven on earth. And then he spells out what the influence looks like in very uh, beautiful four, four ways, four signs of the Spirit. Singing together, which we do. Singing alone, which I hope you do. And I had a great time this week doing it alone at a really obnoxious pitch alone in my study. If you don't sing alone when, when you're with the Lord, I, I actually wonder, like, what's wrong with you? Because it just comes out at times. And, and, it, and it comes out most profoundly when I'm alone, when I know that no one is going to eavesdrop on the sound that I make. And it's just between me and him. I, I'd encourage you, if, and if, if it doesn't happen naturally... Make it happen unnaturally until it feels a little less unnatural, and then, and then maybe it'll come out. It, it completely subverted a bad, sick day. I literally felt, I, I literally, I had been sick all week, if you can't hear it. I feel good today, but I still sound like a mess, and I'm still congested. But I, I, I literally got so, in the middle of studying, I just, I just started worshiping. It helps when a really good song comes on your playlist by accident. You get a good playlist. And, and I, I couldn't help it. I was, I was in worship, and whatever else was happening was gone. My symptoms left. My worries left. Any, any stress, anxieties, distractions left. To me, that's a heaven-on-earth touch that reminded me in my week what I have access to all the time. So we have to sing together. We also have to sing alone. And, and the third thing he says is to be thankful and the fourth thing he says is we have to elevate others. Sing together, sing alone, be thankful, and elevate others. Or in essentially humility, others are more important than yourselves. And then he expands that fourth point of elevating others by showing how it works in Christian marriage. In Ephesians 5, we see this change that's come upon our lives. 
because of Jesus. And the world is going to try to tell us that these changes have, have happened because of this dehumanizing and oppressive force that religion has put on us. And the truth of that is that that is what religion has done to anyone that's under religion. And it's one of the great lies of our day. But instead, we have to demonstrate that we aren't under a religion. We're under a new life, a new humanity, which brings us to life in new ways, in new creative, mind-blowing, refreshing, joy-filled ways. And, and that means that the trouble with sin, three-letter Christian word, sin, it's not that we shouldn't. Sin isn't about that we shouldn't but that we have missed out opportunities to come to life at the points where sin is holding us back. That's where we go back to the lies and truth, anger and peace, theft, generosity, gossip, encouragement. Sin holds us back from life. If that became the culture of the Christian community, we're unstoppable. Everybody wants into that. So this chapter that in, in the chapters of four through, four through six are about a challenge to live this risen life. And part of that challenge is that we find our, ourselves in this union of man and woman in marriage as the most glorious chapter on marriage in the entire New Testament. And what happens, and again, what will be unpacked in the next couple of weeks, is that in chapter one, heaven and earth come together. In chapter two, Jew and Gentile come together. And in chapter five, Man and woman come together. And all these coming togethers are to be signs that creative God, creator God is absolutely at work. And it's his power that's unleashed in these coming togethers. And the challenge of marriage then is to be faithful, not because of some kind of Christian ethic, but because marriage is a creational symbol. A creational symbol that points back to the creation and union of heaven and earth itself. And that's the theme of the book of Ephesians. The Christian household then, a wife is to respect the husband and allow her husband to, to become responsible for her. The key being responsibility to be allowed and respect to be present. And a husband is to love the wife and use responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and prioritize the wife's well-being. Love, sacrifice. And Paul says that this kind of marriage is what reenacts the gospel story. And every marriage in your communities, your, your unified Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Greek and Jew, man and woman, are all meant to be these new humanity demonstrations of the gospel story where the husband mimics Jesus, the love and self-sacrifice, and the wife mimics the church, allowing Jesus to love her and to make her new. And this applies to children and parents and slaves and masters, and he goes on and on and on and on. It's a big, big, big deal. And then he closes the letter with this reminder of these spiritual evils that are at bay. These, these spiritual beings and forces that try to undermine this unity of Jesus' people and undermine this new humanity where we've put off the old and we've broken into the new and yet this old, quiet, sometimes loud, lying voice tries to get us to live from the old again. And Paul's urging them to simply stand. Stand firm is his exact words and he gives this body armor or the, the armor of God where he draws up this, this image from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicts the messianic king 
and, and we now need to make the Messiah's attributes our own. So what does he talk about? The helmet of salvation, righteousness, word of God, truth, faith, the gospel. I want to minister into that in a second. But Paul means for us to essentially do what? Form habits using prayer, using scripture, using our relationships that have us mature and to grow. 